both uh, to and about uh, unbelievers as well as uh, a message he has of encouragement for believers as well. And uh, just want to encourage you this morning, if you're, uh, if you're not a follower of Jesus yet, um, and to encourage you that no matter what, and Jesus is going to talk about uh, some of the things that we hide, no matter what you've hidden, no matter what you've done, that um, what God offered in his son Jesus at Christmas is available to you, no matter what the track record's like. When I was about five years old, I think that's about what it was because I don't remember much back beyond that, so I assume that's what it was. I remember standing <clears throat> in my grandmother's kitchen and um, my grandmother and um, uh, my aunt lived next door to us uh, when I was a boy and I virtually lived at their house most evenings I was over at their house. Uh, she always had lots of candy and um, we also played a lot of card games and board games. Um, on this particular day, um, my mother was there with my sister. My sister probably would have been about eight if I was five. And unlike most times when I was in grandma's kitchen, this was not a happy time because my sister was in big, big trouble. My mother had in her hand a, um, uh, a lock of hair and that she had found in a trash can. And she was just going on a tear to my grandmother how my um, sister had cut her hair. And she pointed to the spot in her head where she had cut this hair out. And, and there was only one person in that room that knew the truth. And that was me. Because it wasn't my sister's hair. It was my hair. And my sister hadn't cut it. I had. And it was just, oh, I, and the way my mother was going on, I was not about to come clean at that moment. That would have not have been wise on my part. But I did feel kind of bad for my sister because she was just, she looked so forlorn and so just awful. And she, but she didn't try to defend herself. And I thought, you know, I would at least take a stab at it if I were you. But I don't think she felt it would do it any good. And so, um, and I did not, I didn't come clean for a lot of years. In fact, I think it was only in the last 20 years that I told my mother. I'm not even sure my sister knows yet. And I don't know what it is about kids and scissors and hair. It's just a curious curiosity thing there. But I guess that most of us have things that we've done or said in our past that we desperately don't want other people to know about. Desperately don't want. And yet Jesus said all of that is going to be revealed one day. Luke chapter 12, first three verses. Now, if you were here last Sunday and um, looked at the final verses in Luke chapter 11, you know that Jesus has just um, crossed swords with the Pharisees, the religious hypocrites of the day. And so that informs what he's about to say. Meanwhile, the crowds grew until thousands were milling about. And really, the word there for thousands is typically used for tens of thousands. Now, we don't think it means that here, but certainly it was a very large crowd. Um, this is still early enough in Jesus' ministry that he was still popular. Thousands were milling about and stepping on each other. 
Jesus turned first to his disciples and warned them. So in other words, he's, he's not talking to the crowd here, but just these 12. Beware of the yeast of the Pharisees. Now, in Judaism, um, yeast usually referred to sin. In this case, specifically, their hypocrisy, he says. The time is coming when everything that is covered up will be revealed, and all that is secret will be made known to all. Now, there's a shift that takes place here um, uh, between verses 2 and 3. Verse 2 is primarily speaking about the Pharisees. Verse 3, Jesus is speaking to and about his disciples because now he uses the, the, the pronoun you. Whatever you have said in the dark will be heard in the light, and what you have whispered behind closed doors will be shouted from the housetops for all to hear. So verse 2 is a negative. All the things you don't want people to know about are going to be revealed. Verse 3 is a positive. All the things that you say on my behalf in, the, in privacy are going to be made public sooner or later. Let's ask God for his help before we go on. Father, our private diaries are full of things that we would never want anybody else to hear, to know we thought, to know we said, to know we did. They're private. There's a reason, but there's a key and a lock to them. And sometimes we think that the things that are hidden from other people are also hidden from you. And yet, not only do you know everything that's in that diary, you know every motivation that drove us to say, do, or think everything that's in that diary. You know our own justifications for those things and excuses. You know how um, proud we once were of them and how bad we feel about them perhaps now when we think about them. And yet you know all of those things. And yet many of us are your sons and daughters despite those things. You, you know the insecurities that we have about talking about Jesus and Talking, having spiritual discussions, far easier to have discussions about what's going on in politics or our nation, what's the latest scores from the football games, what's the latest happenings in our community. And we fear when we do talk about Jesus, not going to have much impact. And yet Jesus reassures us that even the smallest investment is going to go public one day. And so we pray for the Spirit's leading and instruction and comfort and holding out to us great prospects this morning. And by the same token that you would silence the enemy and his nefarious intents so that we would be uh, filled with much hope rather than much condemnation.
pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Two points I want to draw out of this text this morning. One, that private evil will be made public. And two, that private good will also be made public. First two verses are focused on that first point. Private evil will be made public. Now Jesus says, beware, there's a warning there at the end of verse one, beware of the yeast of the Pharisees, their hypocrisy. And he is saying that these hypocrites, the Pharisees that he was talking about last week, are going to one day be exposed. I'm going to one day be exposed. Now, the Pharisees in Jesus' day um, were the very strict sect of Jews who were very, very obsessed with keeping all of the minutia and the details of the law, very scrupulous about keeping God's commands. And we would say, you make that sound like that's a bad thing. It's not. I don't think God ever wants us to be careless about keeping his commands. However, the problem for the Pharisees was that they thought by scrupulously keeping the law, it would make them right with God. That their own um, very precise efforts would make God kind of force his hands, hands to say, ooh, I like you because of what you've done. You've successfully gotten my attention. Now, in our day, we're not primarily looking around at hypocrites. They, certainly some um, who are trying to religiously keep the law. Um, we, we mentioned our Amish friends last week, and certainly um, it's not true of all Amish, but some are still trying to work their way to heaven. If I just do this well enough, effectively enough, God will have to approve of me. Um, we think about that in the Roman Catholic circles as well. There's, if I go to confession often enough and do it well enough, and I say enough Hail Marys and enough Our Fathers, that I can be right before God by my own efforts. But really, we could point to this kind of hypocrisy in, in pretty much any church. Are people thinking they're working their way to heaven by virtue of what they do? I want us to think about specifically this morning, since the Pharisees were kind of the models of their day of people working their way to heavens, and they had a great deal of influence, people would look at them as, I, I want to be like you. I, I want to do what you say to do. And I want you to think this morning about people like that in our culture who are influencing us. Specifically, we live in a digital age in which um, it seems like everybody and their mother has a platform that they would have never been able to have 60 years ago. And so think about the, the Christian leaders that you follow, whether you read their books, you read their blogs, you listen to them on YouTube, or you, uh, you watch them on television. And ask yourself whether or not these modern-day potentially Pharisees are the, are the folks that we ought to be dialing into and listening to. So whether it's, um, whether it's the, uh, the, the T.D. Jakes or the Joel Osteens or the Joyce Myers or the John Pipers or the Matt Chandlers are the people that we're reading or the people that we're giving our ears to, are they first and foremost teaching biblical teaching? Now there's something else that matters a great deal, but let's start there. Are they 
teaching biblical teaching. And, and the, to me, I see the premier problem with that today is that for many of us, we're not really sure. And maybe not really um, taking the scripture and examining what they're saying to the scriptures. Now I have, some of you know, I have a lot of heroes. Um, Christians that I give my ears to. Some of them living, some of them dead. Uh, most of you know John Piper's had a big influence in my life. I got a hold of his book, Desiring God, back in the mid-90s, and it was transformational for me. But I don't agree with everything John Piper teaches. There are some things I look at Scripture and say, no, you're, you're wrong about that. I'm a big Charles Spurgeon fan, but there are some things that I've read that Spurgeon believes that I, I can't go along with. To me, it doesn't quite square with Scripture. And I, and I want to ask you who know Christ, do you square your spiritual heroes with the Word of God? Are, 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 you, are you looking side by side with what you're seeing in YouTube or the books that you're reading and putting that side by side with the Word of God? Let me take you to Acts chapter 17. Something that Luke also wrote. Luke, uh, I'm sorry, Acts 17 verse 11. And the context here is Paul's been in Thessalonica preaching and things got pretty dangerous for him there. His, his friends aren't sure that he's going to be safe. So they spirit him out of town to the next town of Berea. And as Paul's custom is, he goes to teach in the synagogue. It's interesting, Paul's ministry was primarily to Gentiles, but typically he started when he'd go to a town, he'd start preaching in the Jewish synagogue. And that was the case in Berea. And it says this in verse uh, 11. And the people of Berea were more open-minded than those in Thessalonica, and they listened eagerly to Paul's message. Now let me just stop there before I read the next sentence. Depending on your translation, it might say uh, the people of Berea were more noble than the people in Thessalonica. And that is, really, that's the Greek word that's there. But in this case, the New Living Translation has nailed it. It wasn't that they were kind of head and shoulders. They were, they were more uh, to be um, um, <laughs> noble. We, in our day, often noble means um, high, um, uh, high calling, um, well-to-do, and so forth. But the open-minded translation is spot on. The problem with it, though, is that in our day, open-mindedness means that the latest idea that comes down the pike we readily embrace and that's not what they mean uh, when we think about somebody who's open-minded today uh, the old cliche you know this person is so open-minded you know that their you know, brains fall out or something like that it's like it, it's it's almost indiscriminately welcoming to the latest idea but the next sentence clarifies what open-minded would have meant for these people still in verse 11 they searched the scriptures day after day to see if Paul and Silas were teaching the truth. Are you doing that, Christian? Are you doing that? And the temptation is for us to say, look, I am so busy, I don't have time to do that. I, 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 I read this book and I 
see this sermon and I listen to this podcast and I read this blog and I, I, I trust this person. Listen, there's a reason that I tell you about me, you can't trust me. Now, if you were alive back when Ronald Reagan was negotiating with the Soviets about nuclear disarmament, you remember a phrase that he was often trotting out in his public appearances. The attempt was to uh, make sure that the Soviets were actually dismantling their nuclear arsenal um, and the SALT agreements. And Ronald Reagan was fond of saying, we're going to trust, but, does anybody remember? Verify. We trust the Russians, sort of. We're going to verify that nuclear disarmament treaty. And you should have a measure of, you should have a measure of trust for the teacher in your local church, or you shouldn't go to that church, but you should verify. And so everything you hear coming from this pulpit, you should examine with your scripture and see whether or not that sounds right or seems right with the rest of scripture. Because people like me can, can convey persuasive information that's not true or that's skewed or that's twisted. Are you examining? So we like spoon fed. We like our stuff spoon fed, don't we? And, and so as somebody that's um, a good, impressive public speaker or a good author, and it just seems so compelling, or they use good illustrations in their writings, it's like, oh yeah, this is, this is awesome. And we end up concluding that because I like to listen to him or her, what they say must be biblical. To which we should respond, verify. What does the scripture really say? And you should not take everything that someone says and say, I, I just know, I trust this person. Everything they're teaching, I'm confident is spot on. It probably isn't. The second thing we should ask about people that are prospective Pharisees that influence us is not only are they giving biblical teaching, but are they living biblical lives? Are they living biblical lives? Let me take you to 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 3. Now, this is a text that speaks to church elders, but really it should stand, it, it should be an evaluative tool for anyone who has influence over other Christians. 1 Peter 5, verse 3 says, Don't lord it over the people assigned to your care, but lead them by your own good, what? By your own good example. Um, Perry Noble is a pastor of a church, was a pastor of a church down in South Carolina, a huge mega church, about 30,000 people. About a year and a half ago, his elders fired him. Two key issues. One, there were problems at home in his marriage. And partly because of that, um, Perry had begun um, drinking. He, he was already drinking, but his drinking became a problem. And the elders had worked with him over an extended period of time to try to get him to uh, repent and to work on mending fences with his wife. That didn't happen, and so finally they felt they had no recourse but to ask him to step down. 
this past summer, um, Perry was preaching at other churches. And some of the people in the church began to question the leaders um, of, of their church and say, well, if he can preach elsewhere, why can't he preach here? And the leader sat down with the congregation one Friday night and spent two hours um, fielding questions and looking at scripture and saying once again, we don't, we don't really know what other people decide, but we know from our contact and from what we see that Perry is still not qualified to be an elder in a local church. Now what's interesting is about a month ago, Perry filed for divorce from his wife. And about the same time, I found out that he has filed papers with the state of South Carolina to start a new church. It's called the Church of the Second Chance, something like that. Now, here's the thing. Many of us would say, we believe and the Bible teaches that God is a God of second chances. And if I said that from this pulpit, I would hope you would say amen. That, however, is different than saying a person is now prepared to and now biblically qualified to shepherd a flock in a congregation. And it, it concerns me greatly in the day in which we live that that question is not being asked perhaps as often as it should be, i.e., is this person not only have are they not only teaching things biblically but are they living out a biblical example perfect example no but there are plenty of qualifications given to us in scripture that should mark an elder in a church and should mark a person who is having great influence in our lives just like the pharisees would have been in the days of jesus these are the spiritual giants we're getting podcasts from spiritual giants and reading books of spiritual giants. And we should ask, really, does your life match what you're teaching? Is your life representative of someone who have that kind of influence in my, my life? I think Jesus is trying to expose the hypocrites. You read the Gospels, and he's doing that over and over again, trying to expose the hypocrites and their hypocrisy to the people who are being influenced by them. Secondly, as far as private evil being made public, Jesus says in verse 2 that private sins are going to be exposed. And he's speaking here, again, I think about the, uh, the hypocrites or, in general, unbelievers. Time is coming when everything that is covered up will be revealed and all that is secret will be made known to all. If I understand this correctly, that means that every, um, everything that we've done and said that's illegal, immoral, unpopular, embarrassing is all going to be, uh, one day, it's going to see the light of day. So that means every angry word that you and I speak, um, every test that we've ever cheated on, every sexual encounter we've had with somebody other than our spouse, every time ignored God's commands, on and on and on. All of that is going to be brought to light one day. Now the good news for those of us who know Christ is, as we said last week, we're presented to God without fault. The blood of Christ cleanses us from all unrighteousness. But if you're not a Christian, Please, please hear this. 
when I was not a believer, and even after I became a believer, I think for some years, I, I, I lived under this delusion that whatever I'm able to hide from other people, I'm able to hide from God. Whatever, whatever I'm able to hide from other people, I'm able to hide from God. I remember the time that we were with friends and, and uh, I admitted that back in my high school days that I had um, uh, one night that was, a, shall we say, a bit mischievous, and there might be one or two people here who were along that night. Um, we did a lot of destructive damage to property that night, including burning... I was responsible for burning some corn shocks. And this particular friend said to me that night, she said, um, have you ever made that right? Said, Not with the people. And that was the impetus for me. I ended up um, trying to track down the owner of that field. It took a couple of uh, houses, doors that got knocked on, and eventually I found the owner of that field. And, and uh, it was a really a wonderful encounter. I, I told him what I'd done and asked for forgiveness, and I was ready to pay whatever it had cost. This was about 20 years after the fact. And uh, so I was ready to pay, plus interest, and uh, he very graciously said, we've been forgiven by Christ, and I forgive you. Glorious, just glorious um, freedom from from that. But I lived for a long time under the delusion that I could I could hide from God everything I could hide from you. Do you believe that? We do things behind closed doors. We say things about people behind closed doors. We lie. We cheat think that somehow somehow the God who made us somehow he doesn't know about this let me take you to Hebrews chapter 4 verse 13 I, uh, in case you were under the delusion like I once was let me read this this is Hebrews 4 13 this is right after the verse that speaks about the word of God as living and active sharper than a two-edged sword. And then the next verse says, nothing in all creation is hidden from God. Nothing. I mean, it just grasps the comprehensive nature of that word. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God. Everything is naked and exposed before his eyes, and he is the one to whom we are accountable and if you're here this morning not a Christian I, again I think this is primarily speak, speaking to unbelievers I, I want you to hear this truth that God knows everything you've ever done ever said and that one day it's going to be made public I want you to hear that as a as a challenge and not a threat it's a challenge. It's going to happen. But the, but the good side is that God offers you Jesus Christ, a little baby grown to be a man and then died on a cross sacrificially for you so that all of that stuff 
could be paid for by the blood of Christ. Let me take you back to, to Acts again. Acts chapter 17. Verse 31. <clears throat> Acts 17, verse 31. Uh, verse 30 um, talks about God overlooking people's ignorance in earlier times, but now he commands everyone to repent of their sins and turn to him. So if you don't know Christ, he's speaking to you there. And then he um, brings this challenge to your hearts. For he has set a day for judging the world with justice by the man he has appointed and he proved to everyone who this is who this man is by raising him from the dead so a day is coming when Jesus Christ is going to judge the world now back to some of the people that are making inroads into our lives today in terms of their teaching there is an increasingly common teaching out there that says Jesus did not come to judge and he will not judge now the, the, I think the greatest threat to us today when it comes to unbiblical teaching is not straightforward unbiblical teaching it's half truths and the Bible Jesus does say I did not come to I didn't come to destroy I didn't come to judge I came to save but he didn't mean he would never come to judge. He meant this first time, I came to give my life as a ransom for many. I came this first time to save. The second time is going to be different. There is a day of judgment coming. And the purveyors of this half-truth today are saying, no, no, God is a God of love. Therefore, he would never, ever judge anyone. That's a half-truth. God is a God of love, but he also is a God who is holy, and he's also a God who is just. And a day is coming when he will exercise fully that justice for those who have not taken advantage of the good news of a son that he sent to sacrifice himself for all mankind. Richard Dawkins, a famous British atheist, was asked, <clears throat> um, what, what will you do if after you die, you meet God? And this was his answer. And he, um, he did it in a very lighthearted, joking manner. He said, in the unlikely prospect that I meet God after I die, I will ask him the question, which one are you? Which one are you? Are you Baal? Are you Mishrach? Are you Thor? Are you Zeus? Are you Yahweh? And then he said, the next question I'll ask him will be, why did you try so hard to conceal yourself? And as I watched that video, I just shook my head and said, are you kidding me? You can walk into virtually any bookstore in London and pick up a copy of the Bible in your own language. And not just in a British kind of language from 400 years ago, but a modern day, up-to-date version that speaks like you do. 
best-selling book yet in the world. You can go online and watch tens of thousands of videos of teaching about the one true and living God. You can read hundreds, literally hundreds of thousands, perhaps even millions of books that speak about the one true and living God. And you have the audacity to ask, why did you conceal yourself so well? Let me have you look at uh, Acts chapter 24. I have, for much of my ministry, um, cautioned against um, trying to frighten people when we share the gospel. And I still don't think that's a premier tactic. But listen to this. Paul is in front of Governor Felix and his wife. And he's being examined um, about what he believes and so forth. The Jews had turned them over turned Paul over to the Romans hoping that they would put him to death and silence him and so forth. In verse 25 Paul is talking with them about what he believes and it says as he reasoned with them about righteousness and self-control in the coming day of judgment Felix became what? He became frightened. He became frightened and he said go away Go away for now, he replied, when it's more convenient, I'll call for you. And and here's the point I want to make to you if you're not a follower of Jesus. The gift that God gives you in his son is able to take take and wipe away all of your sin like that. How do you do that? Acts 20.21, Paul says the gospel I preach is the gospel of uh, turning to God in repentance, meaning I change my mind about my love affair with sin and I start going the other direction, to turn to God in repentance and have faith in the Lord Jesus. So I'm turning from sin and I'm turning to Christ to bear the penalty for my sin. There's no big ceremony you have to go through to do that. You can simply say, God, I realize I'm a sinner. I repent of my sin and I trust Christ to pay for my sin. Because it doesn't matter what you could do, the extreme measures you could go to to abuse your body or suffer as if God would be impressed with that, he wouldn't. What he's impressed with is if you realize you're a sinner and you put faith in Jesus for the sacrifice that he made for your sins. Boom. But I don't want you to miss in that good news, behind the good news is the bad news that if you reject that gift, there will be a day of reckoning coming. It's as sure as the sun coming up tomorrow or raining tomorrow. It's as certain as God's existence. That will come. And please do not think when God has given you everything you need that he will restrain himself from bringing to bear that judgment on your life when time and time and time again in your life you said no to Jesus he will exercise justice and judgment one day
Now let's get to the warmer stuff. Verse 3. Private good will be made public. As I said, there's a shift from verse 2 where it's uh, bleak to verse 3 where, where it's full of hope. And now he's speaking to disciples about what they say. These disciples uh, in the days ahead are going to be marginalized. They're going to be hounded. Ultimately, every one of them, uh, we think, uh, except uh, the Apostle John, will die the death of a martyr. And yet Jesus is saying, look, um, the impact of your evangelism, your discipleship, um, when you teach the children in your home and in your churches, there, there are going to be ripple effects from those private conversations that get shared. And so even though you may feel like you have an insignificant voice, your voice is going to become significant. And that's true for you, Christian, as well. It may be, for example, that you share the gospel with somebody and you don't get the privilege of seeing them cross the line of faith. In fact, you're just a link in a chain that's 10 years long. But maybe down the road, they end up sharing with someone else what you shared with them once upon a time. Or you teach in an ABF, and something that you shared in that ABF gets shared with other people and shared with other people. That's the point. Jesus is saying, look, my Father is going to multiply the impact of the things that seem to have little effect. They just seem to be a private conversation or a classroom conversation. But make no mistake about it, my, my Father's going to broadcast that. He's going to see that it gets more airtime than just that private conversation you didn't think is going to really mount to much. And that's true of you. The smallest, in, the smallest effect that you think you're having in the kingdom and kingdom work, God's going to multiply, multiply, multiply times over. And so be confident when you have those moments where you share the good news and when you help a a believer grow in the Lord and when you're teaching a class or a care group or even somebody in your family to know that God's going to make much out of that. Here's kind of the bottom line. Whether good or evil, what we're invested in will one day advertise who we are. Uh, as most of you know, Pastor Charlie and I were out in uh, Nevada uh, several weeks ago for our week uh, ministry with Larissa Craig. And the morning that uh, we caught our plane back here, uh, Larissa drove us down the strip of Las Vegas. And um, we saw the Mandalay uh, Bay, I think that's the name of it, hotel, and the, uh, the suite where Stephen Paddock had set up his uh, armory and slaughtered all those people at that concert back in, I guess, October. And in the wake of that tragedy, um, Las Vegas' leaders have very quietly shelved the catchphrase that's been their marketing slogan for about 14 years. You know what that is? Yeah. What happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. Uh, why'd they do that? Well, it's <laughs> kind of promoting the independent autonomy, I do whatever I want, that doesn't really fit well with a, a, a sniper who's killed almost 60 people and injured um, about 550. The other thing that doesn't really fit well with that is, is um, there are a great deal of security measures that take place that are, uh, 
with the various casinos and hotels and so forth in Vegas, but they're very uh, well kept hidden. Somebody wrote a piece about this and they said this, he said, by design, these security measures are largely invisible to visitors. The town's gaming and tourism industries want visitors to feel welcome to do what they like. Indeed, a certain personal recklessness is baked into the modern Las Vegas brand. And toward that end, the Strip, that shrine to constant reinvention, has be re been re-engineered to cater to a sense of carefree enjoyment. If that means drinking out on the street or bringing back escorts to the hotels, he says the properties want their guests to feel free. They want them to know they can do things and not get caught. Las Vegas is a fraud because everything is going to come to light sooner or later. And again, the good news for you, if you're not a Christian, is that all of those bad things that you've done, said, hidden, every one of them is able to be covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. You can say amen to that. And for you as a Christian, all of what you're putting out there behalf of Christ is going to bear fruit to the glory of God and the advance of the kingdom of Christ in this world. And that's good news. Let's pray. I love you, Lord. We're grateful for a God who does not treat us as our sins deserve if we turn to Christ. We don't turn to a religious scheme a collection of religious ceremonies, a confessional where we're absolved of sins by some human being who's also a sinner. But that we are offered, as Paul says, a single mediator between God and man the man Christ Jesus. We're not offered a formula. We're not offered a deed. We're not offered um, some sort of restitution that we make for all of this. We're offered a person. Not someone who is um, made in our image, but someone who, in whose image we've been made and yet his perfect image lacks all of the flaws that ours still carries and because of that because of that a perfect man died a perfect death to perfectly deliver very imperfect people we say to that hallelujah hallelujah